Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Michael Langemeyer. He's a professor of ag economics here at Purdue. And we're going to talk a little bit about the corn and soybean outlook in light of the fact that USDA just released their updated world ag supply demand estimates on Friday. So the big news on the report really was, uh, in some respects, a couple of weeks ago because USDA released their planted acreage estimates at the end of June. And of course, then the supply demand estimates released on Friday reflected those. And the big news on that planted acreage report was the fact that corn acreage was 92 million acres instead of 97 million acres, which was the number the USDA released on the planting intentions report at the end of March. And although we typically do see some change from March to that June report, uh, this was surprisingly large and and pretty much unexpected by most people in the trade. I think a lot of us thought we'd see corn acres come down a little bit compared to what they released in March and maybe see soybean acres go up, but instead it went down 5 million acres. That was quite a bit. Now that 5 million acre change from March to the June report still leaves us with about 2.3 million acres more than we planted last year. But I think the key point is the fact that there's fewer acres than what we were expecting before the report was released. And then, of course, in terms of forecasting crop production, the other variable is going to be whatever the yield turns out to be. This is still too early for USDA to have a survey-based yield estimate. So instead, they're still going with the trend yield. And of course, different people have different trend yield numbers. Uh, USDA is using a number of 178.5. Um, I estimated my own trend. My own trend yields a little bit lower than that. I think it came in about 177. Really just depends on the on the starting and ending points you use on, on estimating those trends. And there's no real right or wrong answer with respect to how you estimate a trend. But either way, it looks like the trend yield is going to be equal to or a little bit higher than the highest corn yield we've had in the past. Um, that 179 would be a new record yield for the U.S., uh, to put that in perspective, last year it was 167. Of course, that was hurt by the late planning scenario and some of the weather problems we had last year. You go back before that, 2018, we were at 176. 2017, we were at 177. 2016, 175. So that's kind of where we're at with respect to the trend yield. And then on, I think most people in the trade like to look at this from a standpoint of, are yields going to be equal to, above, or below the trend? And right now, the best way we have of monitoring that is to look at the weekly crop progress reports USDA releases um, every Monday afternoon. And as we speak here on the the middle of Monday afternoon before this, uh, the most current one comes out, actually. Uh, So we're still dealing with uh, one from a week ago. But if you look at that crop progress report and look at the percentage of the crop uh, reported as being in good or excellent condition, Clearly, the crop appears to be in better shape than it was in last year. That's no big surprise. Also better than in 2017, and really not too far away from where it was in 2016 and 2018. And and in fact, as we think about the weather that's taken place here recently, if you go back about 10 days, people were very worried about hot weather and lack of moisture. In the interim, uh, not every place, but a lot of places in the Corn Belt have received some moisture some more than others, and it's, it's certainly not the last rain needed, but it has been welcome in the in the areas where it was where it was needed and where it was received. Um, 
And you couple that with the fact that all of a sudden the temperature forecast looks a lot better. Um, at one point, we were expected to see a lot of 100 degree or at least close to 100 degree temperatures this week. And uh, now uh, here in the Eastern Corn Belt, it looks like we're looking predominantly at high temperatures in the uh, 80s and maybe uh, crossing over into the low 90s, but uh, a much more favorable forecast than what we were looking at earlier. And it's a critical time for corn because a lot of the corn is starting to pollinate. Um, and so the temperatures and the moisture combined, um, I don't know about you, Michael, but it kind of makes me think that uh, we're probably favoring trend yield or above. And about 10 days ago, I was starting to think about below trend yield. How about you? Yeah, there's there's several several months to go here. In particular, July and August are going to be uh, very important months, obviously. But I think it's a safe bet that uh, looking at right now, trend or slightly above trend. So if you use the trend yield and you take the acreage number that USDA reported, that 92 million acres, that suggests corn production in the U.S. of about 15 billion bushels. Um, to put that in perspective, that would be the second largest corn crop on record. The largest uh, to date has been in 2016, where we produced 15.1 billion bushels. That 15 billion bushel estimate for this year is about a billion bushels less than we thought was possible uh, back in early April following that planning intentions report. So that reduction in acreage was large enough to really pull back the potential production number significantly. But as you think about it, if we do bump up above the trend yield by just a small amount, that would set the stage for record corn production here in, in 2020. So either way you cut it, it's gonna be a big corn crop, at least it looks that way today, uh, based on all the information that we've got right now, but not quite as big as what we were thinking back in April. That's, I guess, the good news from a corn producer's perspective. Let's turn our attention, Michael, and think a little bit about what's taking place on the demand side. And of course, the big wild card lately has been what's going on in the ethanol industry. Ethanol has become a huge source of demand for corn. Uh, in recent years, it's been running neck and neck with uh, feed usage as the number one um, uh, demand source for corn. Um, lately now, because of the reduction in ethanol usage as a result of the coronavirus situation and, and to some extent low oil prices, uh, we're pulling back uh, uh, ethanol usage and as a result the volume of corn going into ethanol production is coming down. So feed usage is now bigger than, than ethanol usage, but nevertheless, still a very, very important source of demand for corn. USDA did revise their estimate for the quantity of corn going into ethanol production in the 2019 crop year, reflecting the impact of coronavirus. So they dropped that back below 5 billion bushels to 4.85 billion bushels. But they're forecasting a resumption or a return uh, of demand for corn going into ethanol uh, for the 2020 crop year and pushed that estimate up to 5.2 billion bushels. Now that still leaves that below where we were, for example, in 2017, which was our record usage of corn for ethanol production at 5.6 billion bushels. So it's still 400 million bushels below that. But it's a significant recovery for the 2020 crop marketing year relative to the 2019 crop year. And I guess... Um, I'm a little concerned that that might be just a touch optimistic. What do you think, Michael? I think that's that's definitely the case. I mean, it it, it could be 5.1, 5 or 5.1, uh, which of course is going to have an impact on, on ending stocks. Yeah, so let's take a look at that a little deeper. 
of course, the drivers here are what's taking place with respect to gasoline consumption and then, of course, the ethanol usage as a blend in that gasoline. And we have seen a significant recovery in both gasoline prices and ethanol prices. You know, if you look at ethanol prices, they bottomed out in April. I'm looking at some data from uh, Nebraska, uh, actually the Omaha market, the Omaha, Omaha wholesale market for both unleaded gasoline and ethanol. And those prices on a monthly average basis bottomed out in April, uh, ethanol averaging about 59 cents a gallon in April, um, improving a little bit in May to 63 cents, improving again in, uh, uh, let's see, I've got those months off a little bit here. That 59 cents was actually for March, I think. And then uh, 63 cents for April, um, 75 cents for uh, May, and then 85 cents for uh, June. And similarly, if you look at the recovery in, in um, uh, unleaded gasoline prices, uh, those have recovered substantially as well. In fact, the June estimate up to about $1.30 a gallon. So that's not back to where it was in February. In February, unleaded gasoline was averaging $1.78, but it is a pretty substantial recovery. But that's the monthly data for uh, up through the month of June. If you take a closer look at ethanol margins, and Iowa State University publishes estimates of ethanol margins on a daily basis. And I looked at those going back to last fall. And we have seen a substantial recovery in those ethanol margins back in late March and the very beginning of April. Those ethanol margins were so negative, um, they didn't even cover variable cost of production. Since then, they've improved substantially. I think the most recent estimate is about 26 cents a gallon uh, above variable operating cost. Uh, at, at, I guess that's the end of June, begin, very beginning of July. But if you look at the daily data, it looks like the recovery in those ethanol plant margins has kind of stalled out. Um, have really had trouble breaking through that 30 cent per gallon um, barrier. And truthfully, to see ethanol production really improve and get all these plants back online, uh, get them operating at, at close to the capacity levels, it's probably going to take better margins than that. In fact, if you look at ethanol production numbers on a week-to-week -week basis, you can kind of see the pattern emerging. So I looked at ethanol production on a weekly basis in the U.S., and compared it to the first full week of January. So I looked at the percentage change in ethanol production on a weekly basis compared to the first week and first full week of January. So I used that as the base. And in the early part of the year, January and February, ethanol production was running a little bit below a year ago, but not a lot. It was about four to five, six uh, percent below a year ago. Some weeks it was only one percent below a year ago. But then as the impact of coronavirus really started to hit, those ethanol production numbers collapsed as those margins for ethanol production collapsed. In fact, as you look at the data, by the end of April, we were running at about 50% capacity, 50% below where we were in early January. So a reduction in ethanol production of about 50% compared to early January. Then starting about the 1st of May, it started to recover, like a lot of things in the U.S. economy. And we got all the way up to, I think, the most recent week I've got is the very uh, ends of uh, the 2nd of uh, uh, July, just before the 4th of July holiday. And ethanol production was running about 17% below that first week of January. 
But when you look at the weekly data, there's three weeks in a row where ethanol production was 18%, 18%, 17% below that first full week of January. It kind of looks like ethanol production, the recovery, has maybe stalled out. And I think that's a concern with respect to the volume of corn that's going to go into ethanol and makes me a little bit nervous about whether or not we're going to see the kind of recovery in ethanol demand uh, and ethanol usage of corn for ethanol production um, that USDA is forecasting. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, and I I think in particular, I'm a little bit worried about the fact that we have seen more COVID-19 cases again. Uh, And that's certainly concerning. Uh, and it makes me makes me wonder whether we're just going to stay relatively flat uh, and and not see further improvement at least for a while uh, in terms of ethanol ethanol demand. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder about whether or not the economy is really going to get back to where it was, uh, and that's that's I guess my concern. And so, I guess we'll have to kind of keep watching the ethanol production numbers and and keep watching the margins. But I'm a little concerned about it. the recovery, which has been substantial stalling out at somewhere close to where it is right now and maybe hanging there over the course of the summer. Because we're, you know, once you get past the 4th of July, um, you know, one level, there's a lot of summer left. But on the other hand, if if schools really reopen, the summer travel season starts to wind down pretty quickly as you get into the month of August. So uh, it's going to be a challenge, I think. So we're a little, little bit concerned about the optimism that USDA has with respect to the recovery and in, in corn usage for ethanol. And, and if, if I had to shade that, I guess I'd shade it on the, on the downside and say that maybe they're going to have trouble hitting that target. Corn exports, corn exports in 19 down substantially compared to 2018. Uh, USDA's got those forecast at uh, 1.78 billion bushels. That's down for uh, compared to last year of, a, of a 2.07 billion bushels. And then for the 2020 crop marketing year, USDA is forecasting a rebound to 2.15 billion bushels. So, again, that's a substantial increase. It's an increase in the 2020 crop marketing year relative to the 2019 marketing year of about 20%. Um, I'm not going to say that couldn't happen, but I'm a little concerned, again, partly because of the coronavirus situation, because that implies really a recovery in demand in those importing countries. And of course, uh, the usage of corn and, and soybeans and soybean meal in those importing countries is for livestock feed to uh, produce meat. Uh, meat demand in those importing countries is sensitive to income growth. And so without income growth, it's going to be tough to actually generate that demand for corn. So I'm a little concerned about the optimism there. I agree with the idea that we're likely to see exports rebound relative to the 2019 crop year, but I'm not really convinced, I guess, that we're going to see a 20% bump. But, you know, that's, that's, so again, I, my bias here is to be a little cautious with respect to uh, the expectations that USDA has built into their forecast. Um, the last big component of demand is feed usage, and that's been a little bit controversial here lately because the grain stocks inventory released uh, at the end of June suggested that feed usage was less than expected, meaning that we had a larger corn stocks available uh, at the end of, at the end of the quarter than, than was expected by most of the trade. And there's really two ways for that to happen. One is for the fact to, to feed usage to actually be smaller than, than the trade was expecting going in. 
the other possibility is that the 2019 corn crop was perhaps underestimated just a bit. Um, having said that, USDA has a forecast for the 2020 crop marketing year of another increase in feed usage here in the domestic side. They've got a 5% increase built in pushing that up to about 5.9 billion bushels compared to their current forecast of 5.6 billion bushels for the 2019 marketing year. So again, given what took place with that stocks report, I'm a little bit concerned that perhaps they're just a touch optimistic with respect to feed usage. Having said that, we still have very large livestock inventories. So some growth in feed usage is very plausible but given what's taken place this year, I guess I'm a little bit concerned about that one. So where does that leave us in terms of ending stocks? Because that's really the where we want to get to in terms of trying to estimate how much corn we might carry over from the uh, not only the 2019 marketing year into the 2020 marketing year, but also from the 2020 marketing year into the 2021 marketing year. USDA's projections suggest about a 16% carryover at the end of the 2019 marketing year, which ends at the end of August. And then a 2020 marketing year carryover into 2021 of 18%. Now, the good news, Michael, is that when you and I were talking about this back in April, we thought that that carryover into the 2021 marketing year, given the expectation for that larger corn acreage number, we thought that could get up in the range of 21 or 22%. And the 18% sounds a lot better than that 21 or 22%, but it is an increase. In fact, uh, you know, going back truthfully for many years, that would be the largest corn carryover we've had in a long time. Yeah. And what's a bit sobering here is that, is that you look at that, you look at that expected price from the WASDE report of 335 for, for, 2020, uh, we had 336 in 16 and 17 with smaller carryovers. Uh, and and, and given, given that and given the fact that uh, uh, we think that maybe exports are a little optimistic, ethanol is a little optimistic, we certainly had pretty large ethanol production back in 16, 17. There's some downside risk here. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the message we're kind of reaching, I think, jointly in, in terms of looking at the supply side, looking at the demand side. If there is a risk relative to what USDA forecast on Friday, the risk would be to the downside. That, that would be our concern. Let's take a look at uh, what's taking place on the basis side. Uh, of course, we have the crop basis tool that Nathan Thompson on our faculty maintains on the Center for Commercial Agriculture website. And as you look at the basis, you can really see very vividly what happened to ethanol demand. Uh, corn basis, for the 2019 marketing year was extraordinarily strong until coronavirus hit and ethanol demand dried up and then corn basis here in the Eastern Corn Belt literally collapsed and actually weakened throughout the country, but especially here in the Eastern Corn Belt where we pay most, the most attention, I guess. Um, if you look at it, what's happened here lately as ethanol demand has started to improve is corn basis has rebounded but what's happened is it's pretty much just following the normal seasonal pattern. And if you have a chance, uh, go look at the crop basis tool on, on our website. And of course it covers Illinois, uh, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. So you can look at it and, uh, not only at the state level, but you can look at it at the regional level because it reports on the uh, crop reporting district level. 
And you can see how the basis around the, the region changed. And of course, the biggest changes uh, were in the areas where uh, ethanol demand is most prominent. Um, ethanol had a bigger impact on corn basis, for example, in Indiana than in, in parts of Illinois. Um, if you look at it on kind of a north to south basis, it had a bigger impact on the north than it did on the south. Uh, and essentially what that means is in markets that were more driven by the river and export channels, um, the reduction in ethanol production didn't have quite as big of an impact on basis. And in the interior markets that were more heavily driven by ethanol, you had the biggest swings in basis based on ethanol, but are based on the demand for ethanol. So if you look at what's taken place, not only here for the rest of the summer, but can, into the uh, 2020 marketing year, we've lost our opportunity for that really strong basis. We're not, in, in my opinion, we're not going to see uh, basis, corn basis, go back to the levels that we experienced uh, really in the first uh, oh, half or a little more than half of the marketing year when we were really the benefit uh, beneficiary of tight corn supplies here in the Eastern Corn Belt and strong demand for ethanol. And once that strong demand for ethanol uh, vaporized, we lost that opportunity, and, and from now on, it's we're probably just looking at basis levels that are uh, keyed off of, of average levels over time. So let's take a look at the marketing opportunities that exist today, and uh, these are some prices that existed uh, Monday morning um, as we were kind of getting ready for this uh, recording. At the time we looked, these 2020 corn futures were trading at 337, uh, using that crop basis tool to generate a forecast for late September uh, central Indiana basis came up with about minus 25 cents a bushel. So if you hedged at 337 with a basis forecast of negative 25 cents, that'd give you an expected sale price of $3.12 if you placed a hedge at that point in time. And even if you have storage, and a lot of people listening to this broadcast probably do have some, some on-farm storage available, um, even if you have storage, you might think about placing hedges in that December futures contract as opposed to the deferred futures contract because historically, especially in a year if we have a, a good crop, the spreads across those futures contracts tend to improve or increase as we approach and uh, actually get into harvest. And that creates an opportunity to roll those hedges forward into one of the deferred futures contracts a little later on, typically in that October, perhaps November timeframe. Um, so that would be my first recommendation. If you want to do some pricing now, I'd probably do it in the December futures contract, uh, even if I had storage and planned to hang on to the corn into the spring or early, um, perhaps the early part of summer. I'd look for an opportunity to roll those hedges forward uh, when the spreads across futures contracts are more advantageous. Having said that, you could take a look at the May corn futures. Um, at the same time that uh, Dece was trading at 337, May was trading at 354. Uh, of course, uh, May corn futures would allow you to store out into the, the April timeframe. A late April central Indiana basis forecast off of the May futures might be around negative 10 cents a bushel uh, based on history. That would suggest an expected sale price of about 344, which sounds a lot better than the 312. But I'm suggesting if you if you look at the spreads, you might have an opportunity to do a little better than that uh, by rolling those hedges forward if you initially place them in, in the Ds. And um, 
you know, obviously that 344 doesn't look as good as some prices that were available earlier in the year. But I think the question going forward is, uh, might we see some prices even lower than that? And thinking about that expected sale price for the fall time frame, um, you know, I think there's a risk we'll see some cash corn trade this fall in Indiana below $3. What do you think, Michael? I think that's definitely a possibility. And as we indicated earlier, there's quite a bit of downside risk in, uh, with, with uh, the market this year. And so, and so even though 344 does not sound that good, uh, it could be quite a bit better uh, than what you see on a cash basis in the fall. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what's going on in the soybean market. Um, you know, we've had that reduction in corn acreage relative to the planning intentions report that came out in April or the, actually the end of March. Um, if we saw corn acreage come down, I think a lot of us thought most of that acreage would simply shift over into soybeans. That didn't really happen. We saw a very small boost in soybean acreage along with that reduction in corn acreage. Uh, so soybean acreage, according to USDA's uh, June report, 83.8 million acres. That's a little bit larger than it was on the planning intentions, but not very much. And then if you think about trend yields, the trend yield estimate for soybeans is about 50 bushels per acre. That's not a record yield. We've seen a couple of years when we've had soybean yields higher than that. 2016, they made 52. Uh, 2018, they were 51 on a national average. So it's close to a record, but not quite. Um, but it's early. Uh, truthfully, it's pretty early to even talk about what the soybean yields are going to be other than just thinking about a trend. If you look at the crop progress information that's available so far, keeping in mind that it's still very early, the 2020 soybean crop is off to a, an excellent start based on crop progress information. So it's uh, looking at the last uh, four or five years. Uh, it's about as good as it's been uh, over that time frame. So, but we all know that soybean yields are largely determined a little later in the growing season, especially the month of August. Historically, it's been a critical month for soybean yields. So with that being said, a lot of uncertainty about soybean yields. But if you take the trend yield number, multiply that through by the acreage estimate from USDA, we still get a pretty big jump in soybean production compared to last year, up about 16%. So last year, we were at 3.55 billion bushels. Uh, I think this year puts us up around 4.13 billion bushels. So a, a big switch there, a lot of that driven by the fact that acreage last year was pulled down so hard uh, because of the planting situation. Nevertheless, uh, bigger corn, bigger, bigger soybean crop, and that puts a lot of pressure on what's going to take place on the demand side. Uh, the first thing you think about, especially with all the trade discussions we've been having for the last 18 months or so, is what's going to happen to exports. USDA's estimate for 2019 is 1.65, excuse me, 1.65 billion bushels. Um, that's down a little bit compared to 2018, which is 1.75 billion bushels. They're forecasting, like everything else, a better year for soybean exports in 2020. They're at 2.05 billion bushels. So that's a pretty big increase. Uh, I think about, what, 24% above the 2019 uh, export for, uh, estimate. That's a big jump. Yes, it is. And, and, and the last couple of years, we've been under 50% in terms of the, uh, the percentage of the soybean production that's been exported. That would put us right at about 50% for 2020. 
So there's a lot behind that and a lot of uncertainty, obviously, but part of that is obviously China. Uh, but that's not the only source of uncertainty there. But I think the key point is, in addition to what's taking place in China, it also implies on a worldwide basis uh, economic recovery from the coronavirus situation. Uh, because, again, as we said for corn, the reason we export soybeans and soybean meal is because people want to consume meat. They want to produce meat and in turn consume it. Uh, and that's driven uh, by growth in consumer income. So, Again, a little bit like we said on the corn side, we're concerned that that export forecast might be optimistic. So taking those numbers though at face value, USDA winds up with a carryover for the uh, 2020 crop that's right about 10%, excuse me, 10%. I think it's actually just a touch below 10%, but when you're around it, it comes up to 10%. That's down significantly compared to the carryover from 19 into the 2020 crop year. Um, but again, built in part on some relatively optimistic recovery with respect to especially exports. If you look at their price estimates, their price estimate for the marketing year average for 2019 is 855. For 2020, not much different, 850. Um, so, you know, if you look at it, um, I guess it's all pretty plausible, Michael, but it hinges pretty heavily on the strength in exports. Without that strength in exports, it's going to be tough to achieve um, the carryover number that they've price. got and the prices as well. Take a look at the basis situation for soybeans. And the basis here in Indiana and in the Eastern Corn Belt for soybeans is a different story than basis for corn. Corn, of course, we had a very positive basis, reflecting the fact that we had a short corn crop in the eastern corn belt last year, very strong animal feed demand, strong ethanol demand especially. Um, and then, of course, when ethanol demand uh, dried up uh, as coronavirus impacted the demand for uh, fuel, uh, we saw corn basis collapse. We didn't see that same pattern on the soybean side. The soybean basis continued to be pretty strong here throughout the spring. However, what's taken place as we go through the summer is we're seeing that soybean basis gradually erode and approach, in this case, the two-year average. Um, and that's going to be the forecast, I think, for the rest of the summer. By the end of the summer, I think we'll probably see soybean basis back pretty close to that multi-year average. Um, so we're not gonna see a recovery of basis to get those strong basis values that we had, for example, back in February and, and the very beginning of March. Uh, and even actually in the, in the middle of March, we were still pretty strong. We're probably gonna see those basis levels continue to erode. And then as you look at the 2020 crop year, we're, we're back to the average. Uh, I don't think there's gonna be anything special going on with respect to uh, giving us a boost in soybean demand, unless we see something uh, unusual develop with respect to crop production here and, and a little later in the summer. So if you want to look at some good news coming out of the reports, I guess the one thing that, that I kind of pointed to was the fact that uh, based on USDA's numbers, world stocks, world stocks of corn and, and soybeans do appear to be tightening a little bit. Um, if you look at soybeans, they on a worldwide basis topped out about 33% carryover. Uh, back in 2018, we came down some in 2019. Their estimate for the 20, 
20 crop year is that at the end of that year, we'll be down to about 26%. Um, the corn side, um, we've been pulling those ending stocks on a worldwide basis down for several years in a row, and they've got them down to, I think, 27% at the end of the 2020 crop year. That's down slightly compared to the carryover coming out of the 2019 crop year, down substantially to where we were back in 2016 when those, that corn carryover got all the way up to 33%. Um, and a lot of that bump there was actually driven by what was taking place in China. But nevertheless, um, that's that's one of the concerns I think as you as you look at it on the from a long term standpoint, what is taking place in the China side. But at least at least moving in the right direction. So that's maybe the one piece of positive news we saw on the reports Friday. Let's take a look at pricing for the soybeans on November uh, soybean futures. At the same time, uh, Monday morning, we're trading at about 876. That was down compared to Friday, of course. Um, I've got a late September central Indiana basis forecast of minus 50 cents, which would put us back to where we were on kind of an average basis. I think earlier, Michael, you told me you thought that was kind of negative, but I think that's in the ballpark, at least a reasonable starting point. Uh, that would suggest if you place a hedge at, at today's futures price of 876, a cash price of about 826, or an expected sale price of about 826. Um, and like the corn, history suggests that if you're going to store beans, you probably don't want to hedge into the deferred futures. You'd want to hedge in the nearby, which in this case would be the November, and then roll forward into the deferred probably at about harvest time. Historically, those spreads uh, in good crop years tend to hit their peak during harvest or in some cases, maybe just after harvest. And uh, that creates the opportunity to roll those hedges forward and increase the returns to that storage hedge program. So if you run up, do some storage, I'd still use the November contract. In fact, if you looked out there's really no premium built into the deferred futures at all. So no real incentive to store on the soybean side, at least looking at today's price patterns. So, so if Jim, if someone had some cash flow squeeze this fall, uh, it's safe to say that'd be better off selling soybeans and, and storing the corn. Uh, well, that's a good question. As of today, it looks like they are getting more of an incentive to store corn than soybeans. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would I would evaluate that a little more carefully as we get closer to harvest time. But as of today, that appears yeah, to be the situation. Yeah, it could change easily. Yeah, yeah. But that's a good point. So uh, the other component here, we're talking so far about the marketing side. From a farm management perspective, we also want to keep in mind what's taken place with respect to government payments. And, of course, just earlier this year, most of us signed up for either the ARC County or the PLC program. Um, we've got some revised estimates there, don't we? Mm -hmm. Let's look at ARC and PLC payments for corn. First of all, and I'll focus on the PLC because I'm assuming that quite a few people signed up for the PLC uh, for corn. I know that was true in the Eastern Corn Belt. Uh, but looking at a Kings Farm and White County, uh, 2019 corn price of 360. Uh, we're looking at a small PLC payment for, for 2019, you know, dime difference between uh, corn price and, and the uh, reference price of 370. Uh, looking into 2020 with that 335 uh, price price set, price forecast or projected price from the WASDE report, you're looking at a fairly sizable PLC payment in the neighborhood of $45 per acre. Uh, as that price gets lower, let's say if we had 320 corn, you'd be looking at a, uh, 
a PLC payment for corn of about $65. And so certainly, if we do see some weakness in corn prices, uh, the PLC payment will partially offset the losses associated with those lower corn prices. So that's certainly good news. Uh, soybeans is a different story. Uh, there, there looks like there's a, a pretty good chance, or a really good chance, of an Art County payment for soybeans in 2019 uh, with the soybean price of 855. However, as you move into 2020, uh, the price is very similar. Uh, 850 price for 2020 is the projected price from the WASI report. So very similar to 2019 price. But remember, if we have something like trend yield, that actual revenue is going to be higher. Uh, and, and when you compare the actual revenue to the revenue guarantee, uh, you're not looking at an uh, ARC County payment uh, for 2020 in a lot of counties uh, in, in the Eastern Corn Belt. And so corn and soybeans is quite different. Uh, when you look at uh, ARC County PLC, it looks like a it uh, looks like a pretty good chance of a, of a good payment uh, for, for corn in the PLC program in 2020. Uh, it looks like the, P, uh, the ARC County payment in 2020 for soybeans is going to be very small uh, and perhaps even zero. So you've kind of summarized the government program payment scenario for um, the last couple of years and then projections for 2020. And, and I think yeah, that's kind of useful. Yeah, looking at the ARC County payments, we did not get an ARC County PLC payment in 2018. Uh, looking at a, a case farm in, in uh, West Central Indiana, White County specifically, we had about a $20 payment on average for corn soybean rotation in 2019. Um, looking at my current uh, price projections uh, taken directly from WASDE, it looks like an ARC County PLC payment of approximately $25 with most of that, if not all of that coming from corn. So, and so very, and so the 2020 payment, very similar to 2019 payment, was really different looking at 19 compared to 20. Uh, in 19, we had that market facilitation program payment, uh, which, which if you look at it from an average uh, corn soybean payment of $62 per acre, uh, the CFAP payment is much, much smaller than the MFP payment. I'm estimating for this case form, the CFAP payment, assuming uh, that we had half the crop stored on January 15 of 2020 of only about $20 per acre. And so uh, unless we get another MFP payment this year, it looks like the government payments are gonna be quite a bit smaller in 2020 compared to 2018 or 2019. So let's uh, do a little net farm income projections here and talk about returns to land. You and I both get a lot of questions about what's going on with land values, cash rents, uh, land prices. So walk through that and see uh, what uh, some of the implications are. Yeah, let, let, let's let's define net farm income first. Net farm income, uh, I take our gross revenue, accrual gross revenue adjusted for inventories is the big adjustment there. Uh, you, you subtract cash expenses and depreciation. Uh, net farm income excludes uh, operator and family labor opportunity costs, and so that hasn't been taken out yet. Uh, also excludes uh, opportunity costs on own machinery and own land. Uh, remember, net farm income is, is used to pay for family living, uh, operator and family labor. It's also used to repay long-term debt, make machinery payment uh, payments on machinery uh, machinery loans and also land loans, and so it, uh, it's used it's used for that. Uh, also, if net farm income is relatively low uh, or even negative, that means working capital is going to decline because you have to come up with funds elsewhere uh, to pay for family living and uh, and and also uh, to uh, to uh, repay loans. Also, net farm income is used to make machinery purchases, uh, so that's why that number is so important. We're also going to talk about net return to land, 
which is a, a more of an economic return measure. Uh, the only cost that we have excluded from net return to land is the opportunity cost on own land. And so we can compare net return to land directly to cash rent. If there's a big gap there, particularly if the uh, net return to land is lower than cash rent, that means there's downward pressure on cash rent. So looking at net farm income, uh, you know, since 2007, there's only been two years uh, with negative net farm income, 2015, and my projection for 2020. And so, uh, so bottom line, uh, net farm income, uh, it does not look very good uh, for, for 2020. Uh, and remember, net farm income is used to, to, to pay for family living, to also uh, to repay debt. And so what that essentially means when net farm income is negative is you have to take cash from elsewhere. That's why I was talking of asking that question about what if you have a cash flow squeeze this fall, uh, what should you thinking about think about selling? Well, there may be some farms in a situation where they have to sell quite a bit of their 2020 crop uh, regardless uh, of what that spread is, um, you know, that, that uh, uh, you know, what that price, what the futures price looks like uh, in, in, 20, in 2021, simply to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to pay for family living and to repay debt. So that, that's how uh, grim th uh, things look like uh, right now from a net farm income perspective. So one of the things we do each month is do our national survey of farmers across the country to learn a little bit about farmer sentiment. And we publish the Ag Economy Barometer. And one of the questions that we ask periodically is we ask people, do they expect their farm's financial performance to be better than, worse than, or about the same as last year? And that kind of ties into what you were just talking about, Michael. We asked that question in March of this year, April, May, and again in June. And of course, we've asked it in prior years as well. And as you look at it, the percentage of farms that said that they expect to be uh, have their farm's financial performance worse than last year really rose dramatically in April and May. In fact, we were up over 50%. I think in April, it was 55% said they expected their financial performance to be worse than last year. May, it was 54%, essentially the same. That did come down on the June survey. People were feeling a little bit better about things in June. That came down to 42%. But that's still a tough number. In fact, if you look at it compared to, uh, for example, the spring of 2019, only 27% said they expected worse financial performance in the prior year. Uh, when we asked that question in the spring of 2018, it was 22%. So people are still very concerned about exactly what you were just talking about, their ability to make uh, payments, to make cash flows, to have enough uh, revenue to uh, cover family living expenses. A lot of concern about there. A little less than there was in April and May, but still a lot of concern. And one of the things that's really disconcerting is those that think they're going to be in better financial shape, that's only been running about 10 11%. Uh, even even looking at March numbers, uh, that's really low compared to what we were uh, in April 2018. That was 22%. Uh, in April uh, 2019, was 17%. So and so, not only is there quite a few people expecting to do worse, there's not there's 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 not very many people that are expecting to do better. And so, this is really across the board. Yeah, good point. So the next uh, thing that I was going to bring up, Michael, is, is the reason why you and I both expected to see maybe a little more shift in terms of planting soybeans away from corn uh, than what we saw. And that was the difference in earnings per acre 
between corn and soybeans, at least here in the eastern Corn Belt. You took a pretty close look at that. In fact, you've updated that. Yeah, so we're still looking at a, a, a soybean profitability compared to corn that's $100 higher than the profitability from corn, or, or in other words, uh, earnings for soybeans are $100 higher uh, than earnings for corn. And we did see some shift uh, from, from corn to soybean acres going from the March intentions report uh, to, the, to the acreage report uh, recently in Indiana, and also some shift in Kansas. But a lot of the other states, uh, the, the shift was really small. And so that's why when you look at it across the board, uh, the shift in soybeans was really small. We actually got a, we actually saw a fairly large decline uh, in North Dakota. And so not only did North Dakota uh, plant fewer corn acres, they also planted fewer soybean acres, uh, you know, if you compare uh, the recent information to the Mar- March intentions report. Good point. So let's take a look at cash rents and, and net returns to land. And this is the one that, this is a chart that I think uh, at least I use, and I think you do as well, to try and infer whether or not there's going to be any downward or upward pressure on cash rental rates. Yeah, when you look at the when you look at this when you look at the cash rent net return to land chart, one of the things that really sticks out is we we've had lower net return to land compared to cash rent since 2014. Uh, in some of those years, there was a, a large gap. 2015 in particular, uh, the gap between cash rent and net return to land was in excess of $100. And we did see a large decline in cash rents in 2016. Now, there's a lag there. Typically, if you have a low net return to land in, in uh, like 2020, you're looking at a decline in cash rent in 2021. So there is a lag there. And so that's important to point out. But in, in a lot of years, this, the difference between cash rent and net return to land uh, from 2014 to 2019 was not very big. When that gap is not very big, you're not eroding working capital very much or very little, and and, uh, that, and so cash rent uh, is stable in those years. And so we can see in 18 in 18 and 19, uh, net return to land was smaller than cash rent, but not that much smaller. And so we've seen very flat cash rents 2018, 2019, uh, and 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 20. Uh, 20, 2020, or the expectation anyway, is that's going to be real. That's going to be relatively flat or very similar to 18 and 19. Uh, that number actually isn't out and will be uh, in in about two weeks uh, in the uh, uh, Purdue uh, cash rent land value survey. Uh, but nevertheless, if, if we look at uh, uh, estimated cash rent, if we assume cash rent in 2020 is similar to 2019, and then we compare that to uh, 2020 net return to land. There's a large gap there, uh, and again, it's in excess of $100, just like it was in 2015. That suggests that there's quite a bit of pressure uh, to decrease cash rents moving into 2021. Uh, there's more pressure for land that's either average productivity or below average productivity. There's less pressure uh, for the higher productivity land. Uh, as you were telling me earlier today, uh, that's been the trend for the last five or six years. There's been more pressure on the lower quality land than there is on the high quality land. Uh, I'm not saying there's not pressure on all three, but there's certainly uh, considerably more pressure uh, for below average productivity land and average productivity land uh, to see a, a decline in cash rent. And the other thing that uh, I guess you and I were discussing earlier is the fact that we would have seen more pressure, downward pressure on rental rates these last couple of years had it not been for the relatively large government program payments coming out of the MFP program. 
that's particularly the case in 19. Uh, we were really worried about 19 with all the prevent plan uh, potential for very low yields, but but the, the, the large government payments, particularly uh, MFP payment, really helped keep cash rent uh, stable. Yeah, it made a big difference and really, you know, narrowed that gap between uh, net return to land and cash rents. And uh, I guess it remains to be seen if something like that's going to happen in 2020. I wouldn't bank on it, but uh, the year's not over either. So on the monthly survey we do for the Ag Economy Barometer, we ask people about their farmland price expectations. And one of the questions we ask is, we ask people what they expect uh, farmland values to do over the next five years. And to put it in perspective, you know, in March, April, and May, between 40 and 44% of the respondents in the survey said they expected farmland values to rise over the next five years. And keep in mind that historically, there's only been a couple of times when farmland values didn't rise over the course of five years. Um, But those were relatively low response rates for that question. In June, the percentage of people expecting farmland values to rise over the next five years really bumped up quite a bit to 55%. That's not the highest it's ever been. It has been up to 59% uh, before. It's been at 57% before. But still, that was a big jump in one month, meaning that people became more optimistic about farmland values when they looked ahead, in this case, five years, Um, which gives rise to the thought of what do you think is going to happen with respect to farmland values here over the next few years? That, 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 seems, that seems kind of odd uh, when, you, when you think about it, when you, when you start, start thinking about that. How can, how can net return to land be that low and still, and still have uh, land values at least uh, you know, going out five years increasing? Uh, but we have to remember uh, the relatively low net returns to land is, is a, a negative influence on land values there's several positive influences on land values that make me think that land values are going to be stable. Probably a bigger probability of land values being stable than cash rent. Uh, there's a lot more downward pressure on cash rent than there is land values. Uh, the elephant in the room here is low interest rates. Interest rates have been extremely low ever since about 2007, 2008, uh, when, when we had, they had the recession uh, in 2008. Uh, the, the Fed's reaction to that was to lower interest rates. They've stayed relatively low. And if you think about the foreseeable future, the next few years out, uh, there's no reason for me to think that interest rates are going to normalize or increase rather substantially. And so that's an extremely uh, positive influence on land values. Low interest rates results in higher, higher than otherwise, uh, higher land values. There's no doubt about that. Uh, some other positive influences. Uh, there's a low supply of land for sale right now. Uh, it's a very thin market uh, to begin with, and so the market's particularly thin right now. Also, the, the uh, land is a good has some uh, good investment potential uh, for non-ag buyers, uh, particularly those that are uh, that are in, uh, in, uh, with pension funds, companies associated with pension funds, looking at long-term investments. Land looks pretty good uh, compared to the S&P 500 uh, index, for example. Land looks really good uh, compared to CD rates, uh, T-bills, T-bonds, those kinds of things. And so, and so land is attractive uh, to, to non-ag buyers right now. And so you put all those things together and you've got, I, I think, more positives going on for land than negatives right now. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And it, it does present somewhat of an unusual situation where we think there's going to be the potential for significant downward pressure on cash rental rates. Normally, I would expect that to also translate into some weakness in land prices. But this interest rate environment and the thin market uh, scenario, those two combined, I think, are probably going to enable land prices to be relatively stable. Um, so I think we're in agreement on that. Um, it is a little bit of an anomaly, though, to be that negative on cash rental rates. And then at the same time, say you expect to see land values probably hold steady. Um, however, we're in unusual times. And, and of course, this depends on whether you're buying or selling land, whether that's good news or bad news. But for most farmers, most farmers hold land in their balance sheet. This is extremely good news. Uh, land's a very important source of collateral, not only for, for, for land loans, but also if you, get, if you have low working capital and you still have some equity in land, you are able to borrow against that land. And so, and so one, of the, one of the reasons why uh, the financial stress today is not near as big as was, was what it was in the 1980s is land values have, have tended to hold their value. Yes, we have to, uh, land values uh, in Indiana, for example, declined 15 to 20%, but that's much smaller percent than what they declined, declined in the 1980s. And so, and so from, a, from, a, uh, from a balance sheet standpoint, the low interest rates are more important to how they're, uh, how they're helping keep land values up than, than uh, lowering interest expense. Yeah, that's a good point. And we both get lots of questions about what we think land values are going to do and, and comparing the current downturn in agriculture to the 1980s. And, and I come back with uh, really two of the things that you mentioned when you mentioned your positive influences. And that is one is the low interest rate environment is much different than the 1980s. And secondly, the thin market, the low supply of land for sale, um, partly because of the interest rate environment, partly because of some decisions with respect to how the lending industry was operating in the 1980s. Uh, one of the things that happened that really exacerbated the decline in the 80s was the fact that we, for a short period of time there, literally flooded the market with, with land uh, for sale. And that, combined with the high interest rate environment, put a lot of downward pressure on, on land values. We don't see that happening right now. So that doesn't appear to be a likely scenario. And uh, I agree with you about the interest rate environment. I don't see those interest rates going up uh, anytime soon. And so as long as that's the case and, and alternative investments uh, don't look very good, uh, that means there's going to continue to be some capital, not only from agriculture, but from outside of agriculture with an interest in investing in this sector. So. That's good news or positive news anyway for land values. And as you point out, for most farmers, that's good news as well. Well, Michael, that kind of wraps up our discussion for today. I encourage our listeners to share the Purdue Commercial Ag Podcast with their friends and colleagues. And uh, on behalf of my colleague, Michael Langemar and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minter. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.